It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Inner space is over. Who do you think introduced Velcro to the Persian Gulf? Test pilot Tuck Pendleton wants to make history. Supermarket clerk Jack Putter needs a vacation. Sir, I'm sorry, Jack. I'm late. That's not good. You know it's coupon day. Lieutenant Pendleton is about to be miniaturized placed into this needle, and then injected into this rabbit. Rock and roll. But something went wrong. And Tuck's about to get a new destination. (laughs) Inside Jack Putter. I'm in a man. Hello, can you hear me? I'm possessed! Now, Jack's got twice the problems. How you doing, Jack? But he's double the man. With Tuck on his side. Kicking more cows! In his gut. <laughs> and on his case. You're not gonna back groceries all your life, are you, Jack? And only 24 hours left 
for Jack to get out of danger so that Tuck can get out of Jack. Dennis Quaid, Martin Short. Give yourself a shot of adventure. Inner space. Robert Picardo is is I there's I'm going to say this a lot. Robert Picardo is my favorite part of this movie. There are <laughs> a, among many favorite parts of this movie. You hadn't seen this in a very long time. You were saying last week. Very long time. Yeah. I, it's so far that I forgot Robert Picardo was in this movie I, as the cowboy. I knew the cowboy. Like, I, I could have told you the cowboy. But Robert Picardo, the doctor, oh, I would not have, have been able to pull that. I, there are some, I mean, you know, once you get over the fact that the science is bonkers and frankly, he the, all of the little cuts in the arteries like why is he still alive with the laser going through veins and arteries <laughs> all the time that's that's a really hard thing to watch but this movie looks freaking great for you know almost 40 years old like it looks great andy i was blown away at at how well this movie holds up you get over the smarmy parts of Quaid in the beginning and the, a, a little bit of some consent issues and the fact that Meg Ryan becomes a plot device that is pretty transparent. I really had a great time watching this movie. I had a great time watching this movie. How often do you watch it? Is this a weekly watch? I not quite that often, uh, but it is something that I own like the digital copy of it. Um, I think my son and I ended up watching it. I can't remember how long, just a few years ago though. And it was one that I watched all the time, like this period, this whole series, you know, we're kicking off this new series with this movie. This is our 1988 Academy Awards back to the Academy this time for uh, best effects, visual effects. I don't know. I don't know why they have commas in things like that like is there a different best effect they were not uh, they had i don't think so so anyway best visual effects essentially from 1988 they only had the two nominees they had inner space and predator and so for the purposes of this series we reached out to our members and had them do a poll to add two additional films onto the series plus a another additional one that we've added on as a member bonus so all in all we're we're talking about five movies from 1987 uh, for this particular series, four public shows and one for the members. And we've added on Robocop, The Princess Bride, and then The Lost Boys is our member bonus. So it should be a really fun series. And we talked about this briefly in our member pre-show chat, but this was the period when I really was starting to pay attention to visual effects. Like I was noticing that these sorts of things were happening in movies. It wasn't just magic when I'd watch a movie being as kind of watching this story be told. I was actually finally at a point where I was really thinking about, wow, somebody's coming up with all of these visual effects and, and how exciting I started looking at special effects books and everything. And so this year, in fact, like a lot of these films that we're going to be discussing are films that I had playing on a regular rotation because i loved the movies but also because i'm just so drawn to these fantastical worlds that people would create with them and so plus i have the soundtrack for this and i listened to this on loop all the time like the songs for from this movie i tell you i just had them all uh, practically memorized and so 
coming back to this one is very easy for me. It was one that um, I, I felt like I knew backward and forward when I uh, watched with my son. There were some parts that I had kind of uh, forgotten a little bit about, but there were a lot of things that I really remembered. And so it was just a joy to kind of return to it again and and revisit it. It's just, it's this period of the 80s, and especially like the the temperament of the way that Joe Dante tells his stories and directs his films. Like I just really click with him in the eighties. And so this is just, it's right up there for me. So, uh, how do you want to approach the movie? Uh, you know, talking about the movie and your experience with it in, in terms of, uh, do you want to start with visual effects? Cause that's why we're here. Do you want to start with, uh, the Quaid family legacy? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose starting with the visual effects is a good place to start because, it is going to be the thread that ties these five films together. Yeah. And for this film, it's stunning, you know, what they accomplished in this, creating all of the stuff inside Martin Short, you know, as we're kind of following Dennis Quaid on his journey through all of the various parts of his body relatively quickly. I'm always amazed at how fast he gets from (laughs) from one place to the other. Just watching, like, how they created the models and everything that they did, it's just, it's such a surprise. And not just there, though, and that's what I think is so fun, is, like, they also were doing a lot of fun effects work on the regular size world, we'll just call it. All of the stuff involving the actual shrinking machine, the kind of the weird little pod that they've designed and how it actually disappears or shrinks, all the way up to the way that... One of my favorite parts of the movie, when Dennis Quaid manipulates uh, Martin Short's, like, the actual structure of his face to essentially turn him into the cowboy so that he can kind of be disguised very Mission Impossible style and go into this meeting, which is hilarious, uh, particularly when Martin Short um, stresses out and loses the uh, loses the the connection to do that, and his face goes... <laughs> through that transformation (laughs) like the effects in that scene are just stunning watching that face go through the crazy morphing process i had so much fun just everything here and it all looks so good like you said like there are some times where you can see the matte lines uh with different things in it but on the whole solid solid work here the whole idea of how to move this thing forward and frankly spend some bucks to make this look like something that's going to hold up for a decade. Like you, you just feel like the team is like, okay, we could make a movie that's going to look great this year, or we could make a movie that people are going to be doing podcasts about, which don't exist yet in 37 years. Let's choose the latter path. Like it feels, this movie feels super intentional and uh, incredibly thoughtful in in how they did the compositing the the stuff they in, they had to sort of invent right this motion controlled thermal camera to do the platelet composites like the stuff that they ended up you know creating to to make this movie work is is you know legendary i mean it's beautiful like watching how dennis quaid was filmed against you know against the blue screen screen you know obviously that was that was done to make him small but Watching how they build the miniature sets, like the miniature ear canals and the microscopic 
positioned to get the eyeball right, the giant eyeball on screen, like to make all those things work and look good and make me feel like I'm inside the body. If I don't stop and think about the fact that they would never have room to put a camera in there, I am really okay with all of this stuff. It it just is, it's really powerful how they used all these, all these different techniques, forced perspective, compositing the works. It just looks so good. Yeah, the question I always have to get out of my mind is like, where is that light source inside the inner ear? I Obviously, he's got a light, but <laughs> where's the light that's shining on everything else? Hmm. Well, Andy, if we're talking about lighting, <laughs> I have to go to the stomach because our print, our final sequence, they're in the stomach and the bile is glowing green. And that is, that's a thing that stops me every time because I can kind of make sense of the eye and the ear that light might be coming in, ambient light. Who knows how light it is really in there? I don't know. But boy, the stomach, I'm pretty sure is dark. I, yeah, I would think so. I would think so. It's not like glowing green predator blood in there or something that's kind of providing <laughs> right, its own ambient right. light. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, although we don't know what Martin Short's been eating. So, <laughs> so to that <laughs> end. Short. Yes, he's got a special diet. <laughs> Maybe he was chewing on a glow stick before, yeah. <laughs> before that scene. <laughs> you know, but I mean, it, I think that's, that's the thing, though. I mean, all of those aside, the idea that they've found ways to make it believable enough where we're not overtly questioning. It's not like there's a harsh sidelight coming through illuminating things. Like, it's, it's believable enough to give us a sense that we're seeing this space and we're understanding it. And I think so much of that boils down to the way that they just put the these these miniatures the 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 sets everything that they built in order to create this these spaces it just feels real and it's just a testament to the hard work that they're able to accomplish and you know joe dante actually had said that this film was the the only one of his that actually ended up actually looking like he had in his head and he really enjoys this film and he's happy that, you know, it's kind of had this following all these years. But he actually also talked about the fact that working with Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg, who's one of the executive producers on the film, Spielberg actually is really, because he's also a filmmaker, was really good at keeping the studio producers at bay so that they weren't bugging Joe on set. And Spielberg, you know, Joe said he felt like working with Amblin, it's just like you get all the toys. You get to kind of, you know, there's no limits. And Spielberg gets it and was a voice that he could reach out to if he had any questions about anything. But he said, you know, if there were any goofy ideas or whatever he wanted to do, they just kind of uh, loved pushing it out to that far out kind of loony limits, which very much ties into Dante's filmmaking style anyway, particularly with his love of everything Looney Tunes and even with some references here, like we get that cartoonish style all through this, which I mean, we've talked about a number of his films. It certainly is the case in Gremlins and Gremlins 2. And I think it's just it's on point here. The movie in some cases, like you bring up the goofy ideas, in some cases, the movie is funny in spite of itself, in spite of some breaks in the internal story logic. And Directly the result of Martin Short's ability to carry some really complex emotions, right? One of the things that's so great about Martin Short is that when he plays it straight, he plays it incredibly straight. And he's able to to deliver the straight man um, just as wonderfully as he's able to, to deliver 
just crazy physical comedy, right? And, and let alone just the way he moves, his dancing sequences, like, they're just really funny because he is an in- innately funny person. But I, the places where I struggle and where I think the movie is, succeeds in spite of itself because of him are places like when uh, Ozzy first uh, injects him, right, with the syringe. Like, they've set up this character in the form of Martin Short as being this anxiety-riddled hypochondriac who is terrified of the world around him and is constantly going to the doctor um, who has built his practice on Martin Short's frequent visits awesome and <laughs> the injection comes and martin short goes to work it just feels to me like i wanted him to go back to the emergency room and yet it's still funny do you know what i mean like it's still funny even though he didn't that's a, those are the kinds of sequences where i stop and i think wait they built a character that would do this other thing and yet somehow he sold it that he did he did the thing that he did and i still kind of buy it does that ever hit you that's cuz he was late he was late. He's an anxiety-riddled hypochondriac, but he is also incredibly t- he's terrified of authority. And well, it ties into his anxieties too. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So it, for me, it worked. I, I figured if anything, it would result. It would have resulted had the story not taken the pl- place the way it does. It would have resulted in a subsequent visit to his doctor to talk about this <laughs> random yeah. injection that he just got. Because that whole, they hold that secret. Like Martin Short doesn't think about his random injection at the elevator until later when it takes him a beat to realize he was injected with that syringe. Syringe. Like, how does that work in this movie? And yet it does. Like, how does that work? It shouldn't. By all rights, it shouldn't to me, but, uh, but it does. And that's why when we get to the place where he's, he's changing his face, that also works because they've set up kind of a bonkers internal structure that I just they it sort of forces me to let go of conscious thought. I think that's exactly it. I mean, I think that Dante uh, from the beginning, I mean, this is a, you know, Chip Prozer wrote the original script, uh, which was a more straight version of the script. And he, he kind of patterned it off of Fantastic Voyage, which we talked about in our member pre-show a little bit with um, kind of other shrinking movies. It was fairly dramatic. It was just kind of a straightforward sci-fi movie. His idea was, what if you took Fantastic Voyage, but the person was up and around, and the person who was inside of him could have conversations with him and kind of talk? And that was kind of all that uh, Jeffrey Bohm, who was brought on to rework the script after it had been kind of optioned for a few years, um, he turned it into a comedy, and his direction that he took was, what if we shrank Dean Martin down and injected him into Jerry Lewis and kind of use that as kind of the core for the comedy? And that seems to be what every, everybody latched onto. Certainly, Dante really kind of tapped into the comedy here. And with his passion, again, for the kind of that Looney Tune, the antic energy that we get and Spielberg on his producer, it just seems like this was a very solid team to bring in a pretty crazy science fiction story. The whole idea of shrinking someone down is fairly uh, nonsensical and done in very fun ways usually, but it usually can be done fairly straightforward by injecting it with the comedy. And, you know, we when we meet Dennis Quaid and, and Meg Ryan, it's not quite so funny, but we're seeing some kind of problems in his life. We're kind of getting that story. And then we start getting into the science, and that's where we kind of start tying things into um, this hypochondriac grocery clerk who um, 
I think that you're right about Martin Short. He isn't necessarily playing it so crazy and over the top out of the gate. You can buy him as this character who's a hypochondriac who also works at a grocery store, but his manic energy is able to kind of build and build as things happen. And that's, I think, that level of comedy that Dante understands and knows where to let it let it go. But we keep seeing it. Like we see it when we meet Mr. Igo. Well, he seems like there's something odd. Why is he holding his finger so funny? Oh, because his finger is a gun. Like, you know, we start seeing these odd things. Even when we meet uh, Victor Scrimshaw, Kevin McCarthy's character, just the fact that everything in his life is white. His clothes are all white. His car is white. He's got little white dogs. <laughs> like, they're just little things like that are giving us these, this sense that this movie, this movie, this world, is just bigger than life, just that much bigger than life, you know? And I think that's what helps. I think it does too. And I think to, on that point, like the, the, as much as I might question some of the individual beats, the whole point of the, the ramp, the absurdity ramp to lead us up to the final battle between robot machines inside his gut, um, like it, it has to get me from, you know what it goes back to? It goes to our first conversation on Marvel Movie Minute about you have to earn your wizards. We, the movie actually does a really good job grounding it in an emotional relationship between two people, um, a broken down test pilot and his ex, and this hypochondriac grocery store clerk that is grounded in such reality, right? They're all struggling in their own way that... But and yet it ramps it up so subtly, like every next little invention is a subtle nod to some absurdity to come next. And so by the time we get to the end, for me, they've earned the absurdity. Like I'm sort of bought in. I can see how in, you know, for some, it might seem like it's too much. They've gone too far. The facial reconstruction thing is a high point of absurdity. And maybe that's just too much for some people. But for me, it's just funny. It's just funny. Like they've, it's, it's well-rounded earned comedy. And it keeps going from there. Cause then we have them shrink down, uh, Victor Scrimshaw and Dr. Margaret Kanker. And Ugh. then we have them as essentially hobbit sized people, chasing uh jack and lydia around and hiding in their car and that becomes a whole other element of it that it just it built in the perfect way because again we keep amping up the absurdity and by the time and again playing with with miniatures and this is like for for their scenes they were playing with what like bigatures essentially like talking the world of lord of the rings because they had to build like giant foam booths and things for these two actors to be working in so that it seemed like they were um, doing these things that they were doing when they were shrunk down. So clearly giant suitcase in the trunk. Was that just a giant suitcase? Giant. Yeah. Giant. They built a giant trunk with the giant suitcase and had them in it. And just, yeah, all of the different things that they would do to make the, the size seem like it worked. So good. Yeah. That stuff even is the, so good. Even the back seat, when the two of them are in the back seat and we've got them attacking, uh, okay. You know, Jack and Lydia, it's all there. There's a, it's a green screen behind them. And you just have little fake hands like that. Somebody's operating like a puppeteer grabbing his face. And then yeah. we have the two of them again in a giant backseat set that we would film. And then the seats conveniently block kind of the connection between the front and the back seats. And so it was able to really pull it off in a way that kind of is, um, it, it just it kind of blows you away. 
It's so funny. That is a sequence where in that you, I stop and I notice those arms are too long. Like those, there are things about it that don't work for me in that sequence. But by then, I'm so enamored by the just joviality of the of the comedy in the car that it doesn't really matter. And I think that's a that's kind of the genius of the movie. Like you don't even see it coming. It's it's dumb and it works. It totally plays for me. Little hands. Tiny hands. It works. Very funny. It works. Very, very funny. So let's talk about our principal human relationships then. Let's talk about Quaid and Ryan and and how they work. How does Dennis Quaid work for you in this movie? You know, I, I buy him. He's uh, He is a... A perfect actor to have cast to kind of play a hotshot um, pilot. I mean, especially this is a few years after the right stuff. And he'd kind of already been in a number of different sci-fi films in between, like Dreamscape and Enemy Mine, where he just kind of seemed to be a great choice for this sort of movie. I buy him already as a pilot from being involved in some of those other projects. It made sense that here he's this pilot. And, you know, his alcoholism, his issues seem to have kind of put him into this place that he's kind of feels left by the wayside and bitter at these younger pilots who are kind of moving on with things. And that's that's kind of where we come in. And it's an interesting place to come in. We're watching this broken guy who's his last ditch effort of making anything for himself is signing up to do this crazy shrinking thing that no one else wants to do. And I, you know, I bought that. I found that to be actually a really interesting way for him to, for him to play this. I mean, it is one of those things where it's like, I don't know if, uh, if a group of scientists doing something like this, if they're, if they'd have to be scraping the bottom of the barrel, but maybe if it's not like government funded, I'm not exactly sure, but obviously they had no security. There are a lot of issues. So yeah, maybe, maybe they did have to scrape the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. I think he is like, you're right. He plays sort of the charismatic broken guy pretty well. And I I wanted to like him more in the beginning, and I I had completely forgotten that the opening drunk sequence existed in the movie. Totally forgot. I thought it opened uh, a la Back to the Future, right, with the machines. I thought it opened with the with all of the stuff going together. So I was surprised because my memory of of Quaid in this movie was not the drunk broken guy, and so it was hard to adjust to that it was hard to adjust to him coming on kind of so hard to to meg ryan and that whole you know having them break up in the street and run out in his sheet and standing there naked on the you know on that street in the city i i thought that was i thought that was really interesting and i kind of wanted to get on with it i kind of wanted over because i did it made me a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> was like, i don't want to not like him right now and i really i don't like him so in that regard it worked I guess it's interesting because this is certainly something that I think does lend to elements that that might feel dated through today's eyes. When a problem, when a character these days has an alcohol issue like this that is portrayed in film, generally by the time we reach the end of the film, they've kind of figured out, you know what, I really need to tone down my drinking. That's not something that ever happens in this film. You know, he drinks too much in the beginning. He uses uh, Jack. And this this interesting method of sitting in his esophagus uh, with an open flask sticking outside of the thing and having Jack drink a bunch of Southern Comfort so that he can fill up this flask and have some drinks himself. I was like, well, that's actually pretty, pretty clever. But and then 
the whole thing is dropped. You know, like we don't ever bring up alcohol again. He never learns a lesson about it. It doesn't come up at all, uh, really, in the issues with Lydia later. It's more just, it, you know, I'm sorry that I, you know, mistreated you and stuff like that. And it's not like by the time we get to the end, it's, I, I feel like if it would made today, somebody at the wedding would offer him a drink and he'd say, no, you know, I pass or no something, thanks. but yeah, yeah we're, right. we're not quite there, but you know, I, I don't think we needed to, but it is one of those things that is set up as an issue with this character that ends up never getting dealt with. Yeah. It's strange in that regard. It's strange that it, that it kind of lingers out there and it does feel, it's amazing. I guess the strangest part is just how dated it feels that they that we don't have a resolution to it, right? Like how far we've come uh, in these movies and how sort of subtle, because it it's really strikes me that that's a miss and disgusting, like drinking like secondhand booze from someone's esophagus. <laughs> that's really rough. That's really rough. Like, when you're desperate, man, when you're desperate, like what's next is like, you know what? I really want a Twinkie. Why don't you chew that up and swallow it? Let's see what happens. Right. <laughs> Gross. Who would do that? disgusting oh my gosh um meg ryan meg ryan uh this is early uh in her career and this is where she meets dennis quaid and then of course they would subsequently marry and uh you know have a fairly long relationship um i guess just 10 years they married in 91 divorced in 2001 but they were pretty much together from this point until 91 so i always liked them together i was kind of bummed that that they divorced but um you know, she's as adorable as ever as she is in all these 80s movies of hers. They did this and then they did DOA the very next year. I think it, I don't think they ended up in another movie, but this certainly, um, or did it, were they in Flesh and Bone together? Uh, they were in Flesh and Bone together. So yeah, I think that might have been it. I just always liked both of them. And she certainly, this was very early in her career, the very, like two years later when Harry met Sally and then Joe versus the volcano. And then, you know, the doors prelude to a kiss sleepless in Seattle. Like she just had that great run of films in the nineties. And, um, you know, she's, she pops up here and there and now she's kind of doing this directing thing, but I, I like her in the film. I mean, you talked a little bit early about how it feels like she ends up, her character becomes just um, there to kind of support the plot. Did you, do you have any more specifics with that? Well, you know, they create this character that is an empowered woman character on screen, right? Like she's a journalist. She must be a real smarty. She's like investigating. She's asking questions of the generals in the party at the beginning. Um, she's single at that point when we meet her, like she's broken up from her, from her uh, husband. So she's, she's like the recipe for a strong female character. And then the choices she makes throughout the movie just kind of unravel any artifice that, was, that, that exists for her character. Like, why is there any rationale for their relationship for that, for that kiss besides switching bodies? That's a device. Yeah. I mean, it's it, exactly. It's purely designed to get them to that place where they, that where we have to get him into her to see that she's pregnant. And that's a whole, a whole plot thing that, that needs to happen. And then conveniently, he's back in the saliva glands, apparently just in time for that second kiss to get him back into the right <laughs> body. All of it is just, it is relying on a lot to, to kind of like a lot of pieces have to fall into place to make all of that work. But 
Yeah, it is one of those things. I completely understand your point, and it is one of those things that is a little frustrating with this, because, you know, you want her... I mean, she does seem like a pretty active and engaged reporter. You know, she's the one who knows about the cowboy and is tracking him, and yep. and so she's she's a pretty you know, engaged character, and you it would be nice to have her more engaged through the whole finale other than just there to help Jack with what he needs to be doing. But, you know. That's right. But it was it also is the 80s. Is. It you was know? the that's 80s. Exactly, and, I would yeah. not expect anything anything more from this kind of movie made in this period. Yeah. it it, it And the, even the roving reporter feels a little Lois Lane from the era. But, you know what? It's still, it's fine. It's It plays okay. And, and I still enjoy the relationships with the characters. You know, they it, it is one of those things, though. They had to have this... Um, uh, I guess she ends up being a plot device also for Jack's character to gain self-confidence when it comes to relationships and women. Like he sees her now as somebody and he, he kisses her and all of this sort of stuff. And, and he's finally able to kind of have the, say the things that he needs to say to kind of, um, to get Wendy off of his back from work and things like that. And, you know, it's fun. And that was a weird thing too. Cause I was like, um, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell if they were setting Wendy up to be a love interest or not. It seemed like maybe, but then clearly by the time we get to the end, nope, definitely not a love interest. Definitely not a love interest. That was very strange. And, um, I, it, you know, it's fine. It, again, she was, she was a plot device, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, uh, not, not a lot of agency, but she was also a comic foil. Like part of her, part of her as a device was a, a comedic device that she gets to be the one who has such a, uh, you know, an otherworldly ex- outside of Safeway experience, right? That she shows up and she's in her total goth outfit or whatever. And she's at this club is, is a fun and comedic surprise. And I like it. Yeah. No, I, uh, yeah. so it, as a like a tertiary character, she she works she works fine for me. Yeah, and it's fun seeing character people like performers like Wendy Shaw. We have Henry Gibson. You've got a lot of faces, uh, you know, Dick Miller that are regulars in Joe Dante's films that kind of pop up all through here, and it's just so fun to see them all in in whatever their little roles that they have. I just I always enjoy all those little bit parts. I uh, w- w- Wendy Shaw is is quite a face for me. Like I, I see her and she looks so, so familiar to me, but I do not like, I, I could not peg her for a specific role until I see the credit. And I'm like, Oh, of course she was in, of course she was in that. I mean, she was in six feet un- under. Well, the burbs absolutely is where the burbs, I, right? That's, yeah. That's hundred percent where I remember her from. But again, that's like, again, all these Dante faces. Like he just, yeah. he loves his kind of building a troop and using people over and over. It's always fun. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to just have shout out to Henry Gibson, uh, as, as Mr. Wormwood, who is just constantly funny and his really subdued performance of, of just sort of general panic <laughs> and <laughs> not understanding what is going on with his with his staff i thought was really really great it was neat to see him in this even it's a very small part yeah absolutely our our two villains the main villains we have kevin mccarthy and fiona lewis as uh victor scrimshaw and dr margaret canker how do they play for you oh great as just sort of maniacal villains i think they're great uh they're they're less fun 
to me than the sub bosses, right? The the cowboy and Mr. Igo and Snap, <laughs> yeah, Snap on. Uh, <laughs> those those two are the are like the the fun pieces to this thing. I think the other two, I, I think they're they're great as sort of the big bads, uh, and I like that the joke is played on them at the end that makes them fifty percent of their size. I think that's funny. So in in that regard, they they play well for me. They play. They play exactly what I would expect. Um, I do think they're a bit fungible. Like I think there are other faces of the era that they could have you could have replaced, and they would have it would have been the same movie. I don't think they give me they don't give me Martin Short vibes. Like this movie would be substantially different without Martin Short. Although I would say for at least Kevin McCarthy, I think having him involved ties him in so perfectly uh, into like my brain with him always always goes to invasion of the body snatchers and so just knowing dante's passion for film history and and genre pictures and all that casting him in this film i think was i'm I'm sure for him just a thrill to get kevin mccarthy in here he delivered a great performance in a great science fiction classic and here he is now doing this silly role and and he was also in piranha too so i mean i think uh, he's a person that he probably loves working with i'm looking at the credits together i mean i yeah it's it's not just a one and done they've worked together a number of times and so i don't know he's one i absolutely love seeing pop up in here um fiona lewis i I don't think I know nearly as well. I, I've seen a few of her films, um, uh, you know, but not a lot. And and this, it looks like, was actually uh, maybe the last film that, or I guess it's just a partial filmography. So I don't know, but not somebody I've seen a lot, but, you know, somebody who's done science fiction films, especially around this era. So it probably just was, oh, she's been in a lot of science fiction stuff. Let's get her. She'd work, you know? Yeah. Right, right. And I liked, I mean, I liked that they actually gave the characters some interesting things. Again, going back to Victor Scrimshaw and his passion for clearly having everything white. Margaret and her seeming like, she always seems a little kind of on the edge of horniness. And I thought that was kind of fun with her as a character. So, Yeah, she's thirsty. She's very thirsty. Yeah, exactly. Uh, John Hora is an interesting one to turn up as uh, an actor. He plays Dr. Ozzy Wexler. He's the one who runs from the lab with the with the syringe and ends up injecting it into Jack Putter's butt. He is predominantly a cinematographer. And yeah. it's it's kind of funny that he ended up jumping into this film with, with Dante. He ended up only acting in, from what I can tell, like three films, this, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and Burying the X. But he's worked with Dante as cinematographer on The Howling, Twilight Zone the movie, Gremlins, Gremlins 2, Explorers, and Matinee, as well as also doing stuff like Moonwalker with Michael Jackson, and it worked on the TV show Erie, Indiana. So I think that's kind of fun that uh, clearly Dante had enough of a working relationship with him to say, you know what, I'm not going to have you shoot it, but why don't you come act in it a little bit? <laughs> I thought that was really great. And I just, there's so much of this movie, this kind of bonkers feel of the narrative of the movie feels so much like Gremlins 2 for me. Like there's just such a vibe and you, I just get it. You know, I get, I, I, I get the whole feeling. I liked him. And I think John Hora, <laughs> I think he was great as kind of the stoic doctor and terrorist punching bag who clearly also seemed to have had a relationship with margaret when she shows up and they recognize each other it's like okay there's there's a lot going on margaret this is interesting yeah 
Yeah, that's a, that's a, like, because you, I, I mean, the way my headcanon works, it was that she used to work in the lab and that's why they're breaking into the lab because they know the lab and she now is able to, she knows what to take and where to take it from, that she was kind of the architect of this. And he, that's how he knew her because they used to work together. But isn't it interesting that they don't like tell you any of that? They don't need to. Yeah. And that's an example of just, you know, trusting the audience, strong writing where, yeah, exactly. Where we get enough of a hint as to what's going on. And then we can kind of piece all the rest together. It's, I think it works really well. Yeah. You know, this, uh, one of my J's, one of the 10 J's in composing Jerry Goldsmith did the score for this. Oh yes. Uh, Absolutely love this score. This is, um, again, Everything in this era was just um, catching me at that perfect mid-teenage era where you just kind of like latch onto everything. And, and Jerry Goldsmith's score here, this may be along with some of those other like John Williams one from the eras are the ones that kind of pushed me into my love of of uh, film scores because I just I think Goldsmith is having so much fun here as he often does with with Dante's uh, films. And delivers just a solid bit of tracks here that are that fit the vibe that we're going for through the whole thing. For sure. And, you know, as long as we're dropping names, Dennis Murin, visual effects supervisor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we talked about our visual effects earlier, but just the fact that we didn't mention him is should be embarrassing to us because, I mean, he is critical to this film. Like, the, the work that he did here, it's top-notch, top-notch stuff. And he's he's right up there as as far as all the different filmmakers uh, the special effects filmmakers who would, could do some amazing amazing things for sure anybody else jumping out to you i mean you know production team is all a list uh, you know just uh, i'm looking at dante's lineup of films that he did in the 80s it's i mean it's it's such a strong run starting with the howling in 81 and then twilight zone the movie he did a segment from that one with the creepy giant bunny rabbit uh and the tv um gremlins explorers inner space uh, uh some segments on amazon women on the moon and the burbs and then gremlin to the new batch in 1990 like really interesting run of films through the 80s it, it honestly i mean it would be fun to just kind of do dante in the 80s and just kind of polish off those last few that we haven't talked about because you know, I just really enjoy it. I mean, God, I'd kind of like to take it up to matinee in 93. I just I love that one, you know. And um, yeah, he's a really interesting filmmaker. And I always have fun uh, talking about his projects. I, I would add to that, like you look at the production team, like John Peters and Peter Gruber, like Gruber, they like look at their films starting from like 81 through uh, 89. Um, and that is a, a extraordinary run of great films uh that i i think are really really interesting and we've done producers in the past like it might be interesting to to kind of play in that area too is that the era when they were heading up the studio or were they just producing at that point i think i'm pretty sure because they've got credits on so much when they're producing you know they end up with things like well i mean there's american werewolf in london in 81 they did caddyshack and die laughing that's that's before it leads to just this run of like five six seven movies in a year which it ends up being you know of course where they have their name on stuff because they were you know, at the studios, uh, Nightmare of Bitter Creek, Caddyshack 2, Girls in the Mist, Missing Link, Rain Men, Finish Line, Batman, Tango and Cash, Bonfire of the Vanities. I mean, yeah, 
the whole interesting run. set of films. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, it's it it is a fun movie for sure. It's definitely um, fun to kind of add this to the list. This is going to be a very fun series to talk about. So uh, yeah. Uh, yeah i guess that's it so uh, we'll be right back but first our credits the next reel is a production of true story fm engineering by andy nelson music by ty simon oriel novella and eli catlin Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right, award season, Andy. We talked about the Oscar. Let's talk about everything else. Everything else. This film had not a lot. I mean, it's. I don't think it was... It'll be interesting to see how we go as we go through this series, like which are the ones that had more nominations. This one, I think, was designed to be kind of just a, a fun film. It only ended up with two wins, five other nominations. At the Oscars, the reason that we are here, the Academy Award for Best Effects, Visual Effects, this is the one that beat out Predator. So of the two that were nominated, this was the winner. We'll talk about these two again and uh, three others that didn't get nominated, but we'll have a fun conversation at the end about, uh, you know, where we stand with all that. Over at the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, a.k.a. the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for three Best Science Fiction Film, Best Director, Best Special Effects, but lost all of those to RoboCop which we'll be talking about. At the Motion Picture Sound Editor's Golden Reels Awards, it was nominated for Best Sound Editing Feature Film, although this was an interesting one. I saw this listed on IMDb, but it's not listed on the Golden Reels page as a nominee. And in fact, I couldn't even find that category. So I'm not sure if that is a nomination or not. Regardless, I'll mention it there. 
at the 2009, this is a later one, 2009 International Film Music Critics Award. It was nominated for Best New Release or Re-Release of an Existing Score, but lost it back to the future. And then the interesting one, in 1994, Guinness World Records. This is where good old Dennis Muren ended up landing the most Oscars won for visual effects. He won for The Abyss, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Inner Space. He also won the Special Achievement Awards for Star Wars Episode Five: Empire Strikes Back, and Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. So I think now he's actually won nine. And then he also received the Technical Achievement Award in 82 for the development of a motion picture figure mover for animation photography. So all in all, he's been nominated 13 times, first time in 1982 for Dragon Slayer, and all the way up through War of the Worlds, most recent in 2005. Very busy boy. Very busy boy. How did this movie do at the box office? Well, Dante had a budget of $27 million for his Fantastic Voyage. That is about $72 million in today's money. The movie opened July 3rd, 1987, uh, 4th of July weekend. Um, big one opposite Adventures in Babysitting. But this one landed in the number two spot behind Dragnet, which was holding its number one spot from opening the week prior. In what was a very busy summer, it could not hold its spot for long and fell out of the top 20 after just four weeks in theaters. Still, it went on to earn $25.9 million domestically and $28 million internationally for a total gross of $143.9 million in today's dollars. Uh, that proved Dante's film a success barely uh, by, the, by studio standards, uh, landing the film with an adjusted profit per finish minute of almost $600,000. And this is one that, you know, Dante himself would go on to say, this is one that was a big hit on video. It really found its audience at that particular time, not really in the theaters, even though it did break even, you know. Well, it's it was a great revisit. Like, it's just an incredibly fun movie and that that, you know, doesn't take itself too, too seriously. And man, it just feels like it holds up. Uh, the look and feel of the movie is just a treat. Yeah, I really have a great time with this one it just um you know brings you back to those um early days watching this movie all the time and it just like you said it holds up like the effects are just still exceptional to watch by today's standards even so lots of fun great movie to add and kick off this new series what a great series it shall be it shall be and so uh, we'll be back for our ratings but first here's the trailer for next week's movie john mctiernan's predator not assassins no what are we going to do? In a part of the world where there are no rules. We pick up their trailer at the chopper, run them down, grab those hostages before anybody knows we were there. What do you mean we? Deep in the jungle, where nothing that lives is safe. You lose it here. You're in a world of hurt. Showtime, kid. Knock, knock. An elite rescue squad. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. <laughs> is being led by the ultimate warrior. We need the best. That's why you're here. But now... What's got Billy so spooked? There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. They're up against the ultimate enemy. Holy mother of God. Nothing like it has ever been on Earth before. She says the jungle just came alive and took him. We cannot see it. <laughs> blood no bodies we hit nothing but it sees the heat of our bodies and the heat of our fear whatever it is out there 
killed Harper. And now it wants us. It kills for pleasure. He was skinned alive. It hunts for sport. He's killing us one at a time. We're all going to die. But this time, it's picked the wrong man to hunt. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Century Fox presents Arnold Schwarzenegger. Predator. The hunt begins Friday, June 12th at theaters everywhere. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. All right, Andy, Letterbox. It's time for Letterbox. What are you gonna what are you gonna steal from to assign stars to this film? It is a very, very fun film. I have a hard time calling this a, a five-star film. I do have, uh, you know, some issues with it, but largely it is very fun. I rated it four stars last time I watched it, and I'm going to stick with my rating four stars and a big old heart. I think that's where I am, too, on this one, four stars and a heart. I think there are just enough pieces that, you know, maybe feel slightly dated, but man, the heart is giant and glowing on this thing. It's just really fun. Yeah. It really is. Well, that lands the film with four stars and a heart over on our Letterboxd account, which is at The Next Reel. You can find me at Soda Creek Film and Pete at Pete Wright. So what did you think about Inner Space? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we'll be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew! Because Letterboxd always doeth. Letterboxd, uh, th- it was actually a pretty good one this time around. It was easy. Easy to find uh, some reviews of people who are thoughtful about this movie. Yes. Are, would, are you, did you go high or low? 
I went to four and a half. Oh, we're both at four and a half. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a, a gentleman goes first. Go ahead. Uh, four and a half by Joe Kaddish, or Kaddish, who says, as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Igo is in the cinematic pantheon of henchmen, and no one's going to tell me otherwise. I just, I, I picked that because I think it's interesting. We didn't really spend much time talking about Mr. Igo. I mean, we mentioned him. We talked about his finger gun and kind of the, you know, his, his switch out of his arms and stuff. But in the scope of like, actually evil henchman you know he's the one who ends up going into uh, getting also shrunken down and getting injected into shorts to battle against uh against quaid i mean did you like him in the scene is he is he go into the cinematic pantheon of henchmen for you i think so and i it, it, i was actually shocked and ashamed that i didn't remember him from my childhood what a fantastic gimmick the hand swap thing like the multi-tool at the end of his arm is a wonderful idea and it plays out like the gun is one thing and he takes the hand off and puts a new gun hand on but when it switches to the drill hand you realize oh my god this guy is black and decker <laughs> it's amazing i thought it was really fun and uh and and it just i mean it, it just played every time i like the car chase too i thought it was a fun car chase he's in the the uh, BMW chasing Ozzy at the beginning. I thought it was really neat uh, just watching him play out. And I think it, it's a pretty understated uh, villain performance. It's not as, it's not terribly mustache twirly, right? That's given to the, no, right. he doesn't even speak. He doesn't speak. Right. And, just and so looks and yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's up there with, with Jaws, you know, this sort of strong, silent, multi-tool type. Yeah, he came from, like, Mad Max 2 and Weird Science and, and stuff like that. So he's somebody who'd kind of been around, but is one of those faces. I, I feel like Vernon Wells is the actor, and he's kind of a... I don't know. He's just, he's a fun face in this one to pop up as this villain. So I, I really enjoyed him, too. I'm glad that, that uh, we got a mention of it here from Josh. And I have a four and a half star from Joe. Uh, who says, the Marvel Entertainment Group is currently flooding the marketplace with big sci-fi blockbusters that have quips and goofs and maybe even some shenanigans, but most of the time, no real comedy. No jokes, no gags, Shane Black accepted, naturally. Here we have plenty of all of the above, and with enough weird science fiction concepts to power dozens of lesser entertainments. And yet I think the thing that will stick with me the longest is Meg Ryan smiling at Martin Short with two parts affection and one part apology at the end. And I think that's the point. Aww. That's the yeah. point, right? Like, this movie holds up all the weirdness because there is so much sincerity and talent in these in these people. And and uh, I think it's, I think that holds. So thank you, Joe. Well said. 100%. Yep. Good stuff. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. 
After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 